You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome to the final episode for Season 2 of Turning to the Mystics where we've been turning to St. Teresa of Avila and her book, The Interior Castle. It's been an absolute joy to be a part of this season, and thank you so much for listening. We're ending on a wonderful note, turning to listener questions in a dialogue with Jim. So let's get started. Well, thank you for being here, Jim, and this is um, our second episode on turning to listener questions. And uh, we're so grateful for the questions. They really help uh, with the understanding of your teaching. So thank you for sending them in. Are you ready to get started, Jim? I am. I'm ready. <clears throat> okay, great. So we have a question from Amy, and she's asking, would you consider Eliot a mystic? I think he was, as are so many poets. Yes. Um, you know, uh, first of all, I, I T.S. Eliot, um, and other mystics too will see like in a broad sense yes as a matter of fact I I have a retreat that I give on on four, on four quartets and I intend once we finish the Christian mystics we'll see how the series goes but I'd also like to do each one on these poets I'd like to do Blake and T.S. Eliot and Dickinson and uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins and Rilke and uh, on the poet as mystic, and Heidegger's thoughts on poetic thinking, as thinking that transcends conceptualization and so on, yes. And, and so, as T.S. Eliot a mystic, let's say this, I want to make a distinction between mystics in the classical sense of the Catholic tradition, Teresa, John of the Cross, Eckhart, and, and instances such as uh, T.S. Eliot. The T.S. Eliot is definitely in the broad sense a mystic because he has this, actually, for example, four quartets, the theme of four quartets is realizing that we tend to be trapped in the circumstantial temporal order of the unfolding of time, trying to find happiness in time. And he, he gives example after example how it's not possible. It's a hopeless cause because of death, you know, because of brokenness. It's just not possible. But if we accept it's impossible, we're never going to find it there. The, 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 the birthless, deathless love of God shines through that brokenness. The, the fire and the rose are one. And therefore, he has a very refined mystical sensitivity about him. And then the classical mystics that he sources sources with Julian of Norwich and quotes John of the Cross, and then uh, Krishna, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Buddha. So he's definitely, yes, it's very, very mystical in that sense. Um, related to it <clears throat> is the distinct sense, and we don't know because I'm not aware, of, maybe I just haven't found it yet, where he self-discloses at this level. Because the mystic in the, in the narrow sense of these classic mystics is that using Teresa's imagery of the seventh mansion, for example, that there's a, there's a, a place poetically in God where the infinite presence of God is presencing itself 
as our presence, like a communion, as a capacity to be realized. She says, in the imperial heaven, in the highest, highest heaven. And that highest heaven of the capacity for that union is then in the very center of our soul. And so in the classical sense, it's literally uh, being divinized through love, see, so that one's very reality is realized to be the reality of God. And uh, so that, that narrow sense mm -hmm. of, the, of the divinization uh, in our nothingness without God is distinct from the broader mystical sensitivity mm -hmm. that one finds in poets and some artists. Mm -hmm. And it's in all of our lives, really, through dance, through music, Mm -hmm. through healing process, we can get intimations of the mystical dimensions or layers of these experiences. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's helpful. So it's um, the, the poet offers us insights into reality that we might not, the, the, myst, the, the kind of the mystery, the unseen components of reality that we might not otherwise see. So in that way, it's helping us become more present, more um, aware, more conscious. Yes. You know, here's another way of putting it, I think, too, is, is the, 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 the poet says things that we can't uh, take in what the poet is saying uh, by determining that I have to conceptually be able to explain it. Mm. I have to be willing to let the need to explain fall into the background to be present to the intimations of the unexplainable, mm -hmm. this, this poetic voice. And there's something, quote, mystical, but, you know, and the very yes. fact we can appreciate the poem bears witness to the mystical dimensions of ourselves, that we're mm -hmm. nourished by that. And, and the same then with the mystic, see, when we read Teresa, we're struck by the beauty of it, but we can't let what she's saying enter into us what we can't do is this. We, we can't say that we're going to take the beauty of Teresa and take it into us. Rather, we have to let the beauty of Teresa take us into itself. Mm. We're taken into the mystical oneness that's having its way with us and our surrender to the beauty of what she's saying. And those two are distinct and related to each other. Yeah. That's so helpful. Thank you, Jim. Um, we have a question from Jazz. He says, I'm not a believer. But, but it has been suggested that a contemplative path might address a longing that a purely intellectual theological inquiry has failed to satisfy. So he asks, can one discover if God is real in this contemplative way or is belief or faith a requirement? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, first of all, I think that there... That uh, I think there are people who are deeply sensitized to the mystical, who don't identify with any belief system. They don't identify with any of the traditional belief systems. Mm -hmm. And um, and therefore what they feel they're longing for is this direct realization of this unitive mystery, this infinite unitive mystery and seeking it. And then they find in people like Teresa that she's talking about that. Yes. And, and um, therefore, although she's Christian through and through, um, her, her Christianity is like a medium or a modality through which she's bearing witness 
to this unit of mystery that transcends Christianity and is wholly present in and permeates it completely as a way towards it. Mm-hmm. But one can find that immediacy of the infinite union with the infinite that echoes in her voice without necessarily ourself ascribing to. Mm-hmm. The, so we can find it that, that way. There's another thing here that's important, I think, is we can begin to see that maybe it's not so much that we don't identify with it, but if we would see the, the Christian imagery as poetic metaphors of the ineffable, then we see that what it does, it provides us a language. See, which was to talk about, that's how she starts out the interior castle. She says, I've been sitting here looking for how can I begin to say this about prayer? She says, it came to me, the soul is like a castle made of a diamond or crystal. Mm-hmm. So under the imagery, the metaphorical imagery of the soul as a castle, she finds a language to express these ineffable things that all the mystics are like that. So I think the more we see these things as metaphorical uh, poetic imageries alluding and incarnating the unexplainable, the more we can kind of be in concert with, even though we ourselves might. That's why also, for example, I can be, I'm a Christian, but this is why I can deeply identify with the Dharma. I can read the stories of the Buddha's enlightenment, and Mm -hmm. I can see it's another language Mm-hmm. for this universality, and I can resonate with it, and that's the interconnectedness of the mystical dimensions of all these traditions. Mm-hmm. Jim, would it be fair to say when uh, this, when Jazz is asking about a belief or a faith requirement, it's not a faith in the dogmatic kind of black and white um, Christianity that's been taught in a lot of churches, It's it, but it is a, a belief or a faith that that experience of of mystery of connectedness is is real and yeah. that and that we can pursue exactly. it exactly. You know, in the Christian tradition, they say belief is a sign of faith. We're not saved by belief; we're saved by faith. So the creed is belief. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. That's the creedal formulation of the belief that then in, embodies or configures the faith which embodies a surrender to the presence of God who's touched our hearts and so on. And so uh, there's a lot of people that are top-heavy with belief and not much faith. Yes. <laughs> they have a lot of belief, which is the ideological ideological approach, or the fundamentalistic approach see, mm-hmm. of the belief. But the, the, these mystical traditions see the beliefs as opening out upon what the beliefs allude to which is this faith and the consummation of that union in faith. And so these distinctions are helpful, I think. Really helpful, really helpful. This is, this is wonderful. A question from Mary Ann. So the, she asks, if it is true that everything in creation has been known eternally by God from before its creation, and God's infinite generosity is pouring itself out as God's self. Well, I'm happy to affirm that about me and other humans and animals, about mountains, about the ocean, about my garden, dot, 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 but coronavirus? <laughs> uh, yeah. These, these are, like I said, the reading trees and these mystics, one of the gifts is it raises questions like this. Yes. And these questions have a long history to them. 
Mm. You know, so for example, in the philosophical theology of Aquinas and then and Duns Scotus and then Karl Rahner, these different theologians, you find them. Ref- how would one theologically respond to it? Theologically. So the question for us is, how do we respond to it experientially? Mm-hmm. Like in our spirit, how do we respond to it? And one way that helps me to say it is that it's really true that ultimately speaking, uh, in creation, and in the beginning God said, let there be light. So in the beginning, let there be stones and trees and stars and you and me. And so this is God whose reality itself, speaking all that is real into being. So in that sense then, um, God is the, is the fontal origin and ground of ourselves in all things like that. And like she's indicating here, that we can learn to see that like in mountains and rivers, and we, we get that the stars at night, we get that sense. Our love for each other's human being. But what about the virus? Mm-hmm. You know, what about political strife? What about racial mm. violence? What about all of this? And I think what we're saying here then is that, that this, condi- this condition, this, this state that we're in as human beings, we're experientially exiled from the all-pervasive divinity of ourselves in all things. And, um, uh, and it's in that exile that we act out the traumatizing things we do to ourselves and to each other. Mm-hmm. And so we're to be healed from that. But there's another part of this too, is that the, 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 the presence of God is, is permeating and is present in the fragmented, fragile nature of nature itself, which mm-hmm. is death. Disease, old age, sickness, heat and cold, mishaps, falling down the stairs, that God's fully present in uh, these broken fragmentations of the nature of things, disease and Mm -hmm. illness and death. God motivates and inspires us to be a nurturing, protective person, to be as careful as we can to protect ourselves and others. When they do occur, God inspires us to do what we can to heal the effects of those things mm-hmm. and to do our best to heal it, which is the corporal works of mercy, you know, which really is the spirituality of the healing professions. Mm-hmm. But we're moved by God to do our best to heal these things in an inner peace that's not dependent on the outcome of our efforts. Um, because in, in, by, for, you know, in terms of God, it's, it's just it's the mystery of mm-hmm. the outcome. So I think this is a very sensitive point yes. about where the presence of God is present. And look how often, too, another piece of this, when I work with people in trauma or my own trauma, very often we're going through something that really is traumatizing. And being careful in no way to romanticize that or to make light of that, often what happens is something was given to us there about mercy you know, or about the mystery of God that we would not know had we not gone through that. Mm-hmm. And so it's all very intimate and mysterious, really, these kinds of questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a big one. <laughs> Just oh. take a breath after that one. That's a, that's a, a hard one. I, um, to just sit with <laughs> That's why I say with these people, I'll retreats too. I'll say when they ask questions like this, I feel like the yeah. mystical Ann Landers. You know, like <laughs> people <laughs> explain the Trinity. You know, what about yeah. suffering? Well, let me toss out a few ideas. So <laughs> the, the questions are so deep 
Yes. They, they can't be answered, but they can be responded to respectfully. Yes. And as we kind of respectfully sit with these questions, we gain our own insights and we gain our own, we connect the dots. That's wisdom, really. We kind mm -hmm. of, we're just sensitive to the depth and reality of these things. Who was Ann Landers? Ann Landers was a, an advice columnist. Dear Ann, she had a sister too, was oh. a columnist. And you know, my 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 husband um, won't stop making fun of me. And what should I do? You know, yes, dear yes. Mildred, tell your husband to back <laughs> off. <laughs> so people would write in on this. She had a syndicated column on, I see. on problem yeah. solving things yes. in daily life. So, yes. you know, it kind of dates me, I guess, Ann Landers. Well, thank you. For, <laughs> thank you for letting me know. Yeah, you're, um, this is Dear Uncle Jim, help me with this. <laughs> um, okay, so we have a question from Ivan and uh, from Melbourne. I wonder if that's Melbourne, Australia. I was assuming there is a Melbourne in Florida, I believe, but. Anyway, there is someone here later from Australia. Oh no! This and this this Ivan must be from Australia because yeah. he talks about um, Archbishop Pell, who who was a, a terrible Australian. There's Archbishop. someone here who was delighted to hear your accent. They're from Australia. And they yes. said, well, how nice that was to hear you talk. <laughs> and made her feel Probably the only person on the podcast who can fully understand me. But <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> go ahead. Right, go ahead. Um, so Ivan who is definitely from Australia. So Ivan asks, I would appreciate it very much if you could comment on people like me on a mystical, mystical path, but coming from an agnostic, atheistic perspective. Are there such people as agnostic, atheistic mystics? We are seekers too. I know this experience could rock my life to its very foundations. And a lot of things in here too. This question too has a lot of layers to it. You know, mm -hmm. first of all, about the, the, the gay lesbian person um, in the uh, in the Catholic tradition mm -hmm. and um, re regrettably there has been a long-standing prejudice against and bias towards and naming a sinful you know the, re referring back to certain texts and so on and that mm -hmm. goes way way back but one finds that in all the traditions I was listening mm -hmm. I don't know if it was Krista Tippett or not um, but it was a woman who she describes um, about being a Jewish woman, being openly lesbian in the Jewish community, being soundly rejected. You want to see strong in Islam too, these very mm -hmm. traditional rejections. So uh, I think we're, 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 we're at a, a turning point with that. Mm -hmm. Thank uh, goodness. Hey? Through society in terms of mm -hmm. presentations of gender and the mm -hmm. different ways we experience gender. And mm -hmm. uh, the inclusiveness of different approaches and that. Yes. So there's that whole question. Mm -hmm. And so in the church, for example, although you have no trouble finding church priests like that who hold that position, you'll find more and more who don't hold it at all. Mm -hmm. And so the parish that I'm in, there's a very open uh, ministry to the lesbian gay community. They meet mm -hmm. regularly there. The pastor, uh, the parish administrator that runs the whole parish, is a uh, is a gay man married mm -hmm. to another man. They have a little boy they adopted, mm -hmm. and uh, everyone just accepts that. So the mm -hmm. thing is, you if you're looking for a worship community in the tradition, then find a community that has that mm -hmm. openness. Uh, the Episcopal Church in general, it's conflicted too, but it's done better 
at first over this than the Roman tradition. But the, yeah. the Roman tradition is really coming along. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Next, about this, about God then being so deeply... And by the way, how does one then stay bonded to the Christian tradition in a Christian tradition that rejects you as a gay person? And uh, what I think the mystery of it is, is Jesus was rejected. Jesus was a Jewish mystic. Theologically, he's the Christ. But experientially, he was a Jewish mystic who was soundly rejected by his own Jewish tradition, which actively contributed to his execution. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, this idea of kind of the prophetic presence of the rejected person itself can be a calling, not to be bitter, a cynical, but be forthright, honest, and real, mm-hmm. and work with that, that, all that, all that. The mm-hmm. next thing is, is that the, about the, the presence of God in this, is this has to do with the names of God. And so sometimes we experience God, and Teresa talks this way to all the most, as a presence, like mm-hmm. the presence of the divine nature, the presence of God. Mm-hmm. But also sometimes then speaks of God as a person. That is, God is, God is someone who creates me as someone, destined for infinite union with the infinite someone who creates me. Mm. Like Cardinal, can the one who made the eye not see? Can the one who made the heart not love? And so the real question is not why is there something rather than nothing, but why is there someone rather than no one? Mm. And so my my subjectivity is in a transubjective communion with the infinite personal presence of God. We also see this mystery in Jesus. Jesus spoke of God as Abba, as presence, and so on. But one finds in the presence of Jesus, the presence of God is incarnate in the living presence of this person. And by the way, I also think that in Teresa, this is what the in Hinduism, the guru, is that the, the living mystic is someone in whose presence you feel you're in the presence of God in their presence. Like mm-hmm. that. And, and they're inviting us then to realize the same is true of you, you just don't know it yet. So we speak of God as presence, and we speak of God then as personal, like transubjective personal. And they're all true. You know, we mm-hmm. move back and forth across these different modes and as it's given to us to do so. And um, uh, on, on atheism and agnosticism, I think this, it depends. If by agnostic, you mean the person who doesn't say, since we don't know for sure, factually, I don't care, I, I'm, I don't care to be involved in it. I, mm-hmm. I don't care, maybe, maybe not. See, I don't think you can have mystical union in that attitude. You can have it in a mystical agnosticism. Namely, I don't have certainty of any specific idea of God, but in the silent communion I pass beyond all ideas of God, which is the apophatic dimension, the hidden dimension Mm. of unknowing. Likewise, with atheism, I don't think you can have it atheism, because an atheist, unlike the agnostic, atheism is a kind of faith. Namely, mm. the atheist is one who believe, believes there is no God. So you couldn't I, be a mystic in that sense because there's no infinity to be united to. You mm-hmm. know, this is it. There's nothing but the empirical. There's nothing but this. But I do think, like the 
theologian Paul Tillich, he said he was a, that he was an atheist, that not an atheist, but an atheist, like the divinity of God transcending all specific modalities of God, and yet somehow present in all of them. So it's another question where this is kind of subtle how we understand this. Mm. I would say too with this person, if I was seeing them one-on-one -on -one in direction, I think what really matters is the, is the sincerity of your question. Mm. Would you care about this at all? Yeah. And, and the intimacy of your caring is the way. See? Rather than trying to sort out these answers, I know at another level we need to do that. But what matters is the intimacy of the caring that bears witness to the path that we're on. Yes. Yeah, yeah and it's interesting, too, um, that the, the uh, emphasis on Jesus, so the, the relational, even though the church um, may not facilitate a healthy way of being relationship. The relationship, even with Ivan, is beyond the church because he talks about interactions with Jesus and and the presence of Jesus, yeah. and so, so that's, yeah. And for someone in the Catholic tradition, say with with these mystical sensitivities, then we know that Jesus is the church. In other words, mm. this is my body, meaning not just this bread is my body, which is mm -hmm. its own mystery. In the presence of the disciples at the Last Supper, opening his arms to all of them and saying, this is my body. Mm. And so Christ's living body, so when the community receives the Eucharist, you know, they're participating in God's oneness with us as the faith community of ourselves in this, this kind of sacramental, liturgical dimension, which is consummated in mystical fulfillment. Yeah. But it gets lost in the theologies and in the... Um, unawareness of these dimensions you know. yes so a question from margaret she's saying that she accompanied her sister to the end of her life um watched her go through a huge uh, amount of suffering and experienced uh, a lot of loss um so she's talking about the process to understand the implications of this shared life death journey for relationships person to person and living out the realization of that thin space between heaven and earth as faith-filled expression of who I am now. So she's, she's asking what, how, how can she understand what this kind of um, suffering changes? Yes. You know, I show this out of my own experience for seventeen, and writing some reflection on the way of the widower. Um, especially when there's been any, this is true of any close bond of the loved one who dies. Mm. So, at one level, the human experience is how painfully and kind of absolutely absent the beloved is. You look around, they're gone. They're so thoroughly gone, you know. And so, insofar as you're still bonded to them, you can walk around crying out loud, screaming, mm. by it, just because you, the interconnectedness of the two of you, you, you kind of lost your a mention of your orientation in the world, really. Mm. But what happens, and this is the grieving process and the spirituality of grieving, that if you don't panic, you know, and uh, you ride the waves of that as it comes and you pace it and stay open to it, you can begin to discover in some very deep, 
deep way that the, the beloved who's crossed over isn't dead. That's what love is, really, like Marcel. We know we learn to love someone when we've seen in them that which is too beautiful to die. Mm. And we also know that not only is the beloved not dead, but then in their death, and this is where the faith comes in, they didn't go anywhere. Mm. They didn't fly off. They're not trillions of miles away in some place called heaven. In God, we mm. live and move and have our being. Mm. And so the beloved, the deathless presence of the beloved is right here. And so for such a person, the, the veil between life and death becomes more diaphanous. You know, it's, mm -hmm. more it's more very mysterious because in some way in your love for them, they, took, they already somehow took you over there too. Mm. I live not where I live, John of the Cross says. See? And in some way, the one who's crossed over is right here with you, like mm. this. And, and so it can, it's, it, the, the way of the, this loss can start becoming itself a kind of a mystical realization of the mm -hmm. deathless interconnectedness that permeates death itself. Mm. And also we can take solace before we get too upset about it. And very, very soon now we'll be joining them. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. like we're stuck here forever. You mm -hmm. know, in about three and a half seconds we'll be over there too. So this is mm -hmm. a temporary arrangement here. Mm -hmm. You know, have a sh very short time really to learn how to love. Mm -hmm. And love never dies. And so mm -hmm. that whole process of bereavement and then grieving as opening out upon mystical sensitivities mm -hmm. is somehow enriched life, really. Mm. What comes to mind for me is um you know there's I, I lost my grandmother you know about 14 years ago and she was one of the closest people in my life and I, like I, I just wasn't even able to to grieve you know that, that her loss was so traumatic for me and um so that that thin space that Margaret's talking about I I, I didn't experience that with her because I I was so I, I couldn't approach it but I will say um, even over time with my grandmother as I've learned to come to terms with her not being present physically um, there's ways that she she has started to show up um, you know both I see her in me things things that I do no. um, and I, I know that's her um, and also just you know experiencing that that lo that loving presence coming that she offered me but coming now from this from this yes. bigger space yeah i think sometimes what happens in a death like this to especially if you're young or if we're really dependent on that they, they were a love contact mm -hmm. is in their death instead of a thin place it becomes a thick place Yes. That's the problem. And what happens then is their loss has traumatized us. Mm. This is why unprocessed grieving can turn into depression. See? Yeah. Or it can turn into addictive process to numb the pain. Mm -hmm. So as we go through the grieving process, we come out the other side and it starts becoming a thin place. I also think this is also related to contemplative prayer. Because as long as we're kind of out here an objective reality is not nearly we're not nearly an approximation that we can talk about it but mm -hmm. when we're in vulnerable wordless silence mm -hmm. we're in this realm between birth and death and that's very often where we can sense the communion um of ourselves with with 
we're all interwoven with each other, heaven and earth mm -hmm. and the living and the dead and everything, mm -hmm. God, yeah. I shared this in, a, in another uh, podcast episode, but, you know, my, the last words my grandmother ever said was, God is pure love. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at the time I was, I was at least happy for her that she died in a place of comfort and acceptance. But um, then those words just stuck with me uh, for years. And this is what led me to the living school and to, to being here today. Yes, so. So thank you, Margaret, for that question. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Uh, Jim, a question from Liz, who's... This is a follow-up question to a little suggestion you made around how to read these mystics um, and to, to kind of read and journal. So do you mind just going over that, that practice? Yes. See, I, I think this is so personal. Like for, for many people, just listening to the podcast is enough. You know, it enriches them, and we're going to take a break and do St. John of the Cross and just walk with it and fine. But some people, this might lead some people to want to get into Teresa. See? And so when we get our copy of the interior castle and get a journal, we sit down, how do we, how do we go about We have to be very patient with ourselves and so on. And... Uh, one thing that helps, like in the collected works, the Institute of Carmelite Studies, Washington, D.C., in the collected works of Teresa, they, they have a lovely introduction to the castle there and an outline of it and break it down and peers too as an outline. But what I was talking about is this, because this personally helps me, you have to be inclined to do it, is take the interior castle and read the first paragraph. Then outline the paragraph. This way I was taught to outline. And when we outline something, it forces us to look at the infrastructure of the paragraph because it's not random. And so what you would do is Roman numeral one would be the topic of that paragraph, which is the topic sentence. Usually it's the first sentence, not always. And, Roman, and you would write that out longhand. You'd write out what she says there longhand. And... Um, uh, and so then, so for example, you might say, as I sit here now, I'm looking for some way to put words about prayer. This is how she starts. See? And uh, you, uh, and what's come to me is the prayer, the soul can be likened to a castle. You'd write this down. Then she makes a comment on that. She, so you would indent and put a capital letter A. And she makes, she makes an observation about the metaphor of the castle. Noting that in the castle there are many rooms, just like like that. Then you might notice she makes another distinction, which would be letter capital letter B. Then maybe under letter B she makes a distinction about that distinction. So you would indent and put a number one, a number two, and then come back and do C. So what you would do is you would write out mm -hmm. the infrastructure, the which requires you to sit with it. Then I suggest putting a, a square on the piece of paper, and write. How have I or how am I experiencing what she's talking about in this? Does this make sense to me? If I this makes sense to see it this way to me, like this. The second paragraph is if I were to say it, how would I say it? Because the best way to learn something is to teach it. What if mm. someone would ask me, What Teresa's interior castle all about? What would I tell them? So by trying to find the words to say what she's saying, it helps us to internalize it. Then put another box under that. 
and ask, what's this asking out of me? What is this asking out of me? And then put another box and then say, um, how's that going? See, how's that going? And so then you would sit with it. And then that, that itself might lead to be closing the book and just do a sitting. You know, mm. just sitting with that and reflect upon it. Then you would do another paragraph. And you would go through the whole interior castle that way, if you were inclined to. Do so, And then it might take you a year, two years to get a year well spent, really. Mm. Take mm. a break. Then come back and start all over again. And this second time around, the boxes will be very different. Mm. So what you said, how would I say it? You might, it might be blank. You might say, beats me. I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> but two years later, you're right and right because you're different. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so that's my approach to repeat until death. You would just keep <laughs> repeating that, knowing the certain mystical works like this shoe. You never get to the end of them because every mm. word bears witness of what's endless. Mm. And you learn to live with the rhythms of that and the openness of that, which is the beauty of it. So that's what I'm saying like that, yeah. Mm. Thank you, Jim. And that's a journaling practice you've done in your... It is. And I think what I've written my books in, or given my talk, even what I'm doing now, it's the consequence of sitting with the text like this for many years, yeah. really. Yeah. See, how could I, how could I find the words to help people benefit from the beauty of what she's saying, which is so enrich my life? How can I pass that on mm. to this? And so then each of us, in his or her own way, we take that. And how I, because I, I can't share what I don't have, or I can't share what I'm not. Mm. So how can I internalize it? Then how I'm being asked to share it? Maybe not in words. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm to share it by the way I treat the people I live with. Maybe I'm to share it by my attitudes or my prayers for the world and so on. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. That's really helpful. Uh, Anne sent in two questions. So one is, uh, are our experiences when moving through the mansions likely to be colored or filtered by individual personality and upbringing? We'll start with that one. <clears throat> Yes. I would say that it's always colored by it. See, let's put it this way. Let's say the mystical awakening is universal. People are awakened. We're, we're the God-given capacity to be quickened by this oneness and the desire then to stabilize in it. When the person so awakened tries to find words to what's happening to them, they find in the words the lineage in which the awakening occurred. So in the Jewish tradition, the person might refer to key passages in Torah or in the prophets, and then in the mystics in Kabbalah, like that one would turn and say, oh yes, this is my thing. And in, in Islam, one would, uh, the poetry of Rumi or Afiz, or in the depth of the Holy Quran itself, like the depth meaning of the Quran itself. So, and then one's own unique experience of one's own tradition as a, as a Christian or as Jew or Muslim or Hindu, whatever one is. So it's, it's always colored. So what you're always doing is seeing these colorations as incarnations of a light that shines through them. Because mm -hmm. it's always in relationship to this mystery infinitely greater than yourself. It's permeating and giving itself to you, not in theory, but it's giving itself to you mm -hmm. concretely yeah. In your own unfolding experience. That's my understanding of it. Mm -hmm. 
Anne mentions um, that she's uh, standing predominantly in an Enneagram headspace. And I did just want to bring that up because um, any of these systems that help us um, experience reality more clearly um, can be can be incredibly helpful but then in in the end they can turn and become the stuck place you know that if we if we if we think the system is going to give us the answer or the system is <laughs> yes. and so at, at some at some point and this is the bait and switch of this path right that it that it you start off it's incredibly helpful i've seen things about myself i couldn't see i'm feeling god's presence you know through this system but if i stick to it too too strongly um, it will be, become a barrier That's to exactly the presence right. I want to be. I, I've mm. heard Enneagram people say, um, they'll say, a couple that they know got divorced. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, how surprised everybody is. And they'll go, well, no wonder she was a two and he was a five. How was that going to work? <laughs> we could have warned them right away. Like, don't do it. <laughs> like, taking it literally. But at the same yes. way, if you take it correctly, and all this is like that, scripture's like this, life is yes. like this. If we yes. take it correctly, and Enneagram's a great example, like Teresa said, mm-hmm. there are certain uh, paradigmatic, uh, 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 poetic configurations of grace mm-hmm. that can shed light on our experience mm-hmm. and h- kind of help us find our way and help things connect. And that's a very good example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So even the frameworks Teresa offers, if we stick so tightly to the framework, expecting it to yeah. deliver something, really, like we're, what, we're, like what yeah. mansion am I in, and yes. uh, how how can I get to the next one? And um, uh, you know, we we miss the point really. But if she says she's trying to help us find the language, or what is the quality of my experience of in response to God's deepening presence in my life mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it's very personal you know very kind of interior and she always means it in that it's clear she just means it in that sense mm-hmm. yeah thank you and also talks about the image of spiritual marriage not um resonating for her at all and so she's asking for another um metaphor immersion like a fish in water yeah all those um, all, whatever is yeah. helpful Whatever is helpful, immersion, uh, something that might be more, a spiritual marriage doesn't work, for example, when we get to Eckhart. See, these nuptial mystics, this love imagery. Yeah. And, and, then, the, and then that parallels bhakti yoga, devotional love, the, the Gita, and so on, and it parallels uh, Sufism. Mm-hmm. But Eckhart, he doesn't talk this language. He talks about presence. Yes. And he talks about having a virgin mind. Mm. the birth of the word in the soul and this is why mm-hmm. Eckhart is more analogous with Buddhism on, mm. on mindfulness and presence and so on and so we need to find what is the language that aligns itself with what's given to us I, yes. I would say this though with mystical marriage what might help is to to the analogy would be just think, it doesn't have to be Mary just think of someone that you love very much mm. and what is that experience like to love somebody that loves you, just to have that experience. Now, what would that mean that that gives me some taste yeah. right, of what it is that's happening between me and God, even though, and she, she speaks to her having a condition where she can't form images of emotion. Mm. She has that 
and I, I think to that inability to form, which is related to her question, really, mm-hmm. itself could be a calling, because it could be mm-hmm. a calling to apophatic mysticism, that is to live without an image. Mm-hmm. What, what is imageless realization? How does one seek this? So the whole cloud of unknowing. See, what is the unknowing that doesn't coalesce around any image mm-hmm. as a path? Yes. But then, but then I would say, but what it does do, it coalesces in the sincerity of her question. Mm-hmm. It coalesces in the concreteness of her desire. Yeah. But not necessarily in an image that she holds on to us. Yeah. So she mentioned she has. Am I saying this right, Jim? A fantasia. Yes. Yeah, which what is that? It, she can't. The person, it's a, um, a unusual. It's a, a condition in which the person cannot form images of their own emotions. Uh, oh, like they can't configure. Like we can form an yes. image of it, yes. and their mind doesn't. This is one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So you could see then all this talk about mystical marriage is an image. See? Yes, but since her mind doesn't allow her to have a viable access to images. You can understand then why she would, uh, and that's why I'm suggesting an ap- apophatic way of no image. Yes. And just let the poetic beauty or depth touch her as it touches her. And like she's saying, through immersion, interpenetration, oneness, just stay yes. with what where the flow is for you. Let the rest go over your shoulder. Don't worry about it. Yes. I have some resonance with the question because I think because of my, my confusion about... Um, love and marriage given given my um, mother and father's you know yeah. growing up in a household where that wasn't so th- so we're, we're reaching for a finite experience and so many of those finite experiences have been broken for us in our individual context and so really trying to trying to find the one that it's, um, it's that actually resonates it's for us. True. Like for me, like this happens a lot really this for therapy touches spirituality like Jesus like Abba Father. One, there's a whole patriarchal thing, you know, it's Abba, but it really is the divine origin like this. So there's mm-hmm. there's that issue mm-hmm. of how do we find a, an inclusive language for God is a way that it allows us to use the word Abba, our Father, mm-hmm. right now, the way that Jesus intended. Yes. But there's another thing. It's like with me, my father was a violent alcoholic. I was brutally beaten and repeatedly. And so my image of my father was hardly a basis. But for and you can see some of them just walk away from it just to be true to themselves. So for me, mm-hmm. it, the image of loving father was healing for me. See, I saw it as a corrective move or a counterpoint mm. to that, and that my father, through his brokenness, was an aberration of what a father is. Mm. And uh, I could learn to see that and work it through. And so everyone has to sort all this out. You know? Yes, yeah. Thank you. So we have a question from Michael who shares a very personal uh, story and he asks, uh, Jim, is it possible that I glimpsed the seventh mansion when I had what I would describe as a mystical experience following a very difficult few years while in my 20s? Yes. First of all, this happens a lot actually. Sometimes when someone's traumatized, it doesn't happen at all. The opposite happens. When they're traumatized, it kind of closes everything down and it can become an ongoing, internalized thing they need to work through, post-traumatic stress disorder and so 
suffering. But sometimes what happens with some people, in the very intensity of the law, just when things became the darkest, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness grasps it not. It was precisely when things got so completely dark that a light was shining in the darkness mm-hmm. and changed my whole life. I remember mm-hmm. once years ago I was giving a retreat, and, and it was way back when I first started. And there was somebody on the retreat with his wife, and he was um, uh, on D-Day, of uh, the storming of the beaches in D-Day, uh, from the beginning of the, uh, the invasion of and um, he, he said it was just horrible. He remembers, he said, the noise. And as they were storming the beaches out of these boats that were landing all these troops and they were being machine gunned down. Literally, his buddies were being blown to pieces on both sides of them. Mm. He said, all of a sudden, it was like everything was happening in slow motion and silence. He said, it's the most peaceful I ever felt in my whole life. Mm. He said, I even asked God to let me die because I was afraid if I'd live, I'd ruin this. Mm. And, he said, and he said he would never, never forget that. Wow. And this happens a lot. So it happened with me, too, is how my awakening first happened, was in the middle of my trauma. So mm. sometimes what happens in the middle of the trauma is the quickening occurs. Mm. That's true. It doesn't mean that it takes the trauma away, but it can mm-hmm. give a reference point, see, within oneself to find one's way. It's like that. So then the next thing is, is it possible then in such a state to have a glimpse of the Seventh Mansion? Because when you hear her talk about the Seventh Mansion, it has echoes of what you experienced. You know, there's like intimations. Mm. And I think this, not the Seventh Mansion in itself, because the essence of the Seventh Mansion is that it's permanent. Mm. But I think you could have a flash of what it would look like if it were permanent. See, Like having tasted it, or a fleeting moment, mm. I got a glimpse of what that would be like to be so habituated in that, that it would be like the constancy of mm-hmm. uh, everything that I experience. And I, I think yes, in that sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of his story is, you know, going through something traumatic and then then later having a having a vision, and uh, I, I resonated with that. That, that it's uh, sometimes it's. It's not in the midst of the trauma, but but something arises later. By the way, yes, this is another piece that he mentions. We can have an experience like this. And sometimes unexpectedly, days, weeks, months, or years later, sometimes half awake, half asleep, where we see something, all of a sudden, uh, the quickening occurs. Mm. See, all of a sudden like a previous unrecognized layer of what was given in that moment comes out into conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does happen. Yes, it does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I resonate with that too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. So a question from Sarah. She's asking, should I have a spiritual director even if I can't find someone who knows and is on this contemplative mystical path? Yes. Uh, I think that, here's my sense of this. First of all, let's say typically speaking, a spiritual director is, is someone who helps you in your prayer. They help you discern how God's present and what you're going through. It's like that, okay, a spiritual director. So some people go to a retreat house or wherever they have spiritual directors and look for someone to help them. If they're drawn this way to the mystical, 
if the if their spiritual director is very pastorally grounded in the faith, very loving, but they they're not like this. Uh, you can just tell you. So so the real question is, where can I find a contemplative spiritual director? Mm-hmm. See, someone who is a direction and someone who is also himself or herself been sensitized to this. And they're not that easy to find. What I suggest to people if they're in the Catholic tradition is check out retreat houses, especially ones who offer contemplative retreats. See? Or are there any spiritual directors there who offer guidelines in contemplative prayer? Also to uh, contemplative outreach and also International Christian Meditation Society where you'll find people to, so sometimes you have to look I mentioned an earlier podcast. I was talking once mm. about with Thomas Merton about this at the monastery. And um, he told me, he said, once in a while you'll find someone with whom you can talk about such things, but they're hard mm-hmm. to find. Yeah. He said, it's a temporary arrangement, and you'll spend most mm-hmm. of your life without one, which is the solitude of the path. Mm-hmm. So you have God, you have prayer, you have Teresa, you know, and you also have daily life. You also are open and receptive to what God's communicating to you in the middle of your situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, if one can find a contemplative director, it's, it's a gift when that happens. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, this is a uh, difficult situation for Sarah because she's a spiritual director herself and there's a requirement that you must meet with a spiritual director to, to retain your accreditation. So. Um, if she can't find a contemplative spiritual director, um, there's a way of being in a role that, you know, that yeah, here's that my thought. She can, yeah. Um, this path we're talking about, it's always configuring itself and calling us to itself in the circumstances in which we're being called. Yes. And yeah. so you have to work the system. You have to know how to work mm-hmm. the system. So if I'm a spiritual director, and I know I myself need to have a director in order to be a director, then I go have a director. Okay? Yes. And even yes. though I can't find a director who's a contemplative director, it doesn't stop mm-hmm. me from having my director. It doesn't yes. mean that God's not present in my relationship with my director. It, it just mm-hmm. means this is part of my solitude. And then mm-hmm. it might just so happen that somebody that I'm directing is being awakened to this. Mm-hmm. And in my presence with them, they might find someone to offer experiential guidance and encouragement. Mm-hmm. And so God can use me to pass on to them what I can't find somebody to pass on to me mm-hmm. directly, mm-hmm. but it's passed on to me in silence, it's passed on to me through the mystics, and that's mm-hmm. my that's my walk. Mm-hmm. That's the, um, with the contemplative path that the acceptance that God's presence is present in all the circumstances. That's right. And so how do you take in the um, the lack of a spiritual director that gives you guidance as God's presence in in your life and 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 operate from that that center? that's that's been a shift for me in in trying to orient the world a little little yeah. differently. See, I think this, this is what Jesus meant by uh, <clears throat> the will of God. See, mm. the will of God is God's presence in the circumstances of what I'm in. See, and how can I find that divine depth dimension that's sustaining me and present to me in this situation? Also in AA, you know, life on life's terms. 
Yeah. And also for the Buddha, later podcasts we made to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Gospel. <clears throat> See, for the Buddha, uh, the middle, the whole middle way, the suffering is caused from determining that the condition necessary for you to be happy is other than the conditions that you're in. Mm. As long as I've determined there is a certain condition that's necessary for me to be happy, and it's not this condition, I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what I have to learn is how can I find uh, the depth of what I'm looking for up, welling up out of the pre condition mm -hmm. that I'm in, deeply accepted, deeply seen. So this is a kind of a universal depth dimension, intuitive thing in all these traditions, I think. Yes. Yeah. So to suggest that a contemplative spiritual director is ideal is not to say that if there's not one, that God's not very present in that and can can work through those circumstances yeah exactly and by the way if you have a contemplative director good for you yeah but guess what they're going to die or move to idaho mm. or some <laughs> you know some damn thing <laughs> you know you go oh, i got a director i got a director please don't walk, yeah. you know or they're, they're going to get a phone call and find out you died you know they'll go mm. oh, gosh there was really <laughs> good yeah. person there so anyway we need yeah. to kind of just roll with it and take it as it yeah. comes yeah well, I appreciate that question from Sarah because I think you could replace so many, um, so many circumstances like that. You know, my if I had a church that was contemplative, if I had a uh, a partner in my life that was contemplative, if I, if I had a, and in ideal circumstances, we'd have all those things. But um, in our world right now, this contemplative path is so rare, and we have to travel much of it alone see i think this is so hard to do but it's i think what all the mystics are saying is what jesus is saying anyway you see how can i learn not to let the conditions that i'm in determine the fundamental condition of my mind and heart mm. how can i let the fundamental condition of my mind and heart be grounded in a depth of presence that utterly transcends all these conditions unexplainably permeates all these conditions. See? So I'm aware of the conditions. If it's sad, I'm sad. If it's mm -hmm. scary, I'm scared. I'm just a human being. See? Mm. But how can I think the taproot of my heart see? in a presence that's not reducible to any of this yeah. and grounded in it is sustaining me in the midst of this? I think that's, that's an important kind of way of articulating part of this path in a way. Yeah, that's really helpful. And and you just have to keep coming back around to it because it's confusing. Um but but I, I appreciate you saying that, Jim, that um we're not we're not um avoiding our emotions. We're accepting them fully and, and but but through them finding yeah. that yeah. that deeper yeah. So Jim, one last question from Sue. And she asks, she says, I'm puzzled by the recurring use of the Lord's Prayer. To me, the God in this prayer does not jive with the God that the mystics describe. The God of this prayer is separate, elsewhere, patriarchal, judgmental. I would like to appreciate this prayer. Instead, I find it off-putting, not just on this podcast. So can you help me understand why is this particular prayer appropriate for this podcast? Yes. Well, first of all, I think the Our Father and Father is off-putting because of how often in the Christian tradition authoritarian, punitive, judgmental, uh, you know, table-pounding 
Bible-thumping rhetoric about in all Catholic tradition, all traditions. So no wonder what, what we've done to it. Yeah. So I think some things are helpful why I use it, several reasons. One, what, what would really help is to prayerfully reflect on what Jesus meant by it. Mm. Through his parables, the parable of the prodigal son, for example, the key example. And he meant the opposite of that. Mm. He meant like an infinite oceanic tenderness with utter disregard for our foolishness, see, who keeps drawing us in and uniting us to us as precious in the foolishness itself, which is experiential salvation. See, mm -hmm. Which is, uh, that's, so that's, that's, and that's why it's the good news of Jesus Christ, not the bad news. It's mm -hmm. not the bad news of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Like God mm -hmm. never really likes you anyway, so <laughs> so you're out of luck. Sorry, and uh, uh, and no wonder because you're such an unworthy per like that. It's the opposite. Yeah. So that's the first thing. What did he mean by it? the other thing in his own life? It says he would spend whole nights in prayer, see? and then he would come out walking the earth looking for people. And what he was looking for was to pass on or communicate through him this love. Like utterly trust, Father, into your hands I commend my spirits. How he died, mm -hmm. that's how he died. So that's that's one thing. Um, as as a corrective thing, is being restored back to the original wording of Jesus, who offered it, and now the aberrations that were done to it over time. Is that mm -hmm. the next thing? Another reason that I use it, also by the way, in Teresa, I think in the way of perfection. Just a beautiful thing on meditating on the Our Father. She walks through it phrase by phrase by phrase. I was thinking of doing that myself, really. See, mm. see, see because Our Father, right away, is a term of endearment, see, like Our Abba. And since it's Our, we're all siblings of your infinite love. See? Mm. And since heaven, like Teresa tells us, is heaven in heaven, and I'm in heaven with you, but also my soul is your heaven. Because you're in me. So we could walk through the whole Our Father as a kind of mm -hmm. mantra, these phrasings. And, I, and the reason I use it at the end is to bear witness that I'm saying this within the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, contemplative Christianity or mystical Catholicism, open to all the traditions. And so, I, and so when people come to my sitting group at St. Monica's, when I used to have it, most of them there were Catholic, but a lot of people were. Protestant denominations, some were Jewish. A lot of 12-step people weren't even religious at all in that sense. And so the Our, the Our Father is said in that universal collective voice. Yeah. You know, each person says it out of his or her own lineage and way. So that's why I, those are some thoughts that helped me. Yeah. And, and then I would say to her, if it bothers her that way, either consider rethinking it in these terms or just don't say mm -hmm. it. Yeah. You know, no laws. I mean, you're, you're kind of yeah. Have to walk. It goes, goes back to what we were saying earlier about um, you know finite examples of the infinite, and some sometimes because of our background, because of the way the churches behave, that we can't. They they block us instead of inviting us. Yes, right. And so, well, if it's blocking you, it's it's not helpful. But um, can you can you return to it the invitation that Jesus? founded in it, which was the invitation to a loving, That's right. infinite God. Another way to put it would be it's using a different word that mm. has the same meaning. For example, I think there are certain moments in life where we're going through like a loss in a relationship or something. Mm -hmm. And what you're struck by 
is that somehow you're touched by what we might call uh, like a boundaryless benevolence. Mm. That there's something benevolent that's sustaining me in this. Mm -hmm. And so the benevolence becomes the metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're really looking for, like the, the, the tasting of that core. Uh, yes. Anyway, Thank you for affirming that. Um, well, Jim, we've come to the end of our time for questions. Um, I want to let everyone know we didn't get to every question, but we did read every question. And so please um, feel that if you send a question, it, it is influencing the direction of the podcast, the teaching, the sensitivities. So we're grateful for everyone who took the effort. Yeah to send a question. Um, how are you feeling, Jim, at the end of Teresa? I feel very good about it. I feel, I feel very good. One, I feel good personally that these mystics that I've been so immersed in since I was in the monastery, really, that I now have a providential opportunity to share with people. Yes. And it's just gonna be out there and stay out there like long after mm-hmm. I'm gone on the mm-hmm. earthly plane, the teaching stays. And um, I feel good about the sincerity of people's responses that they're touched by it. Mm-hmm. And because um, these teachings aren't easy to find for some mm-hmm. reason. And I feel very good about it. So it's good we're taking a break. And yes. then I think in January, start up again, and we'll do St. John of the Cross uh, on the, mm-hmm. the Dark Night of the Soul. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll do John of the Cross next. So yeah. I feel very good about it. I feel very grateful for it and good. Why, why is uh, John of the Cross the next mystic? <clears throat> He's next for me because uh, John of the Cross and Teresa were close friends. They were mystics mm. together and knew each other very well. And also at the monastery, uh, John of the Cross was probably the first mystic that had a pro- profound effect on me mm. over the years. So it's very personal for me for that reason to share John. And like Teresa, he's very rewarding but not easy. So once you get the inside of his language, it all starts falling into place. So mm. that's why I'm doing John on the Cross next. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Jim. Um, well, uh, thank you for the time today. Thank you for this incredible season and, and the beauty that you've revealed. And thank you, Corey, for being there in the background and helping us in all that we're doing. Yeah, really. Thank you, Corey. Yes, very much so. And and also, Kristen, you because these questions that you're asking are these very leading questions that uh, a number of students have said this, and these dialogues help them because it mm. brings their own things out into the open. So it's a contributing part of all this. So, so Corey, both of you, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah thanks, Jim. And a uh, quick shout-out to Paul Swanson, who has been in the background listening um, with sensitive ears to to the direction of the podcast and helping shape it with us. So thank you, Paul. Yeah, thank you, Paul. (laughs) What a guy. (laughs) So we'll be back in 2021. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? 
The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.